0: So, from wherever you are right now, in whatever season of life, in whatever way you think about what's happening right now in your life, whatever's happening right now to whatever's coming in the future, some kind of change accompanies that. So, change is natural, is how Sharon put it. And we're going to kind of. Look at that. Here's what's really interesting. Statistically, in this room, 10% of you run toward change. We heard it in some of the answers, didn't we? It's beautiful, it's exciting, it's necessary, right? Those are the people probably who tend to to run toward change. 10% of you absolutely despise change. You you go kicking and screaming into the future. And statistically speaking, 80% of you are somewhere in between those two answers. So you say, I'll go, but you need to convince me, right, of, of something being good. So, so kind of early adopters, late adopters, and sort of the bell curve that's there. Now, what these numbers communicate is called the spice of life. Oftentimes, you marry someone who's not in the same statistical category around change as you, certainly in a church family, in a business, in a band, in a school, in any kind of family or venture together. There are people who have different uh, perspectives about change. So whether you are stuck, stubborn, safe, or sprinting toward change, here's a couple of things. There is opportunity here. Um, Because no matter where you fall in the realm of how you sort of respond naturally to change, you actually need other people around you to guard you from your natural weaknesses. Wouldn't you agree that those who sprint toward change often are in danger of running off a cliff? Yeah, because they're just like, change, let's do it! And those who never, ever, ever want to change need people around them. They actually need people in their community speaking into their life, To guard them from their natural tendencies and weaknesses, which would be to never change. So this idea of of having others around you that protect you is one part of it. Here's the other part of it. Hear me really clearly. No matter where you fall in this bell curve, your voice is needed. In a healthy community, the voice of those calling for and leading and pushing for change are needed. Christian, in the power of the Holy Spirit that resides in you, guiding you into all truth, speak out. Raise your hand, call a meeting, say, yeah, but let's, let's not stay stuck here. Let's move forward in this. And those of you on the far end of not liking change and being resistant to change, your voice is needed as well. Here's what I want you to see. In Acts chapter 11, we sort of see this whole dynamic going on. Look at the title for a second, and I have this title up here, and it's, it's, um, it can be read kind of two ways. Look at just the red wording for a second. It says, change is, period. Change is. That speaks to what you were saying, Sharon. It means that the only constant is change. Change is happening all of the time. Every single morning that you wake up, every single night that you fall asleep, change is going on. Becky was gone. She was out of town on Friday night. And as I'm tucking in my kids, there's one kid in particular who I knew would struggle the most with mom being gone. I'm tucking in Everly and I said, Everly, you've got this. You can do this. We can make it through. The two that would struggle most with mom being gone was me and Everly. (laughs) So we prayed and we tucked in. We said, we got this. Here's what happened. I went to sleep. And at some point in the night, I heard the door open, and I, I heard someone walking in. And I have this very weird thing. I'm a deep, deep, deep sleeper. Um, but then when I'm, when I'm a, sort of woken up, the, like my, my first sense being woken up in the middle of the night is rage. Rage and attack. I want to attack whatever's happening because something must be wrong. So I hear someone walking in, and I hear myself saying, who is it? Which one are you? Which kid is it? Who is it? What's wrong? This is my natural state when I wake up in the middle of the night. Even while I'm saying it, I am beginning to come out of the fog of sleep saying it doesn't really matter. I knew it was one of my kids. It doesn't matter which kid is there. Um, And so I'm trying to sort of change from zombie sleep-like state into like comforting, nurturing dad. Meanwhile, Everly... (laughs) Everly is going, Mom, Mom, like really loud and aggressively. She's pretty aggressive in her wake up state, too. Mom, it's pitch black. Mom, where's mom? Mom, where's mom? I've now come out of it enough to give her a logical answer. Mom is in El Dorado Hills with Briley's bridal shower. She doesn't need to know this. She's nine, she's half asleep. So we're having this conversation, and I finally just said, here, just get in bed, and she goes to sleep, and in my mind, I thought I should really get her back to bed so I can have a peaceful rest of the night, and that was the last thought that I had in my head. We both woke up, and Everly wakes up next to me, and she goes, I don't even know how I got here. <laughs> she didn't remember anything of what happened, so I told her the story. Every single morning that you wake up, you go through a change, right? We're constantly changing. Change is. Here's the other way to read this. Change is dot, dot, dot. So not only is change just absolutely factual and you can bury your head or you can run towards it, you can deny it's happening or you can sort of engage with it, but change is dot, dot, dot. Here's what I mean by that. What I mean by dot, dot, dot is a variety of answers apply. Isn't it true that change, depending on the season of life, Depending on what kind of change we're talking about. Here's what I didn't do. I didn't qualify the, what kind of change we're talking about. So is change good or bad? It depends. What are you talking about? What are you changing? Change is interesting if we're looking ahead predictively as to whether change is needed. Or whether we're looking sort of uh, discerningly back on change that has already gone on. Was that a good thing or was that a bad thing? Should we change back? Where we were because we made an error in our change. The book of Acts is a book of change because the book of Acts is a story of transition. Acts chapter 11 is where we are. Um, Let me just reframe for a moment some big themes of Acts because it really helps uh, settle into the context of where we are in Acts chapter 11. Transitions are where God graciously meets us where we are at and takes us where we need to be. Sometimes transitions rock our world, and sometimes transitions change the world. That's certainly what we're seeing in the book of Acts. Here are three things that are fundamentally changing in the book of Acts. Number one is is the presence of God. Jesus ushered in the very change that he predicted. The change that he predicted is that bodies are now the temple of God. We become the dwelling place of the Holy God. Where was it in the Old Testament? Well, it was in a tent first, and then it was in a temple, and Jesus promised it would be eventually in his people. So we now have these mobile temples of the Holy God that venture and go into every nook and cranny of society and our community. No longer do we go somewhere to meet with God. God comes to us, Emmanuel, and he stays with us. So that's a fundamental giant shift that's going from Old Testament to New Testament. Where do we read about it? The book of Acts. It's a major time of transition. Here's another one, power and personality. God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus comes to usher in the new era But he can only be in one place at one time. Jesus had to stop and rest. He had to eat. He had to walk to get places. This is what it means to be human. What's the transition in Acts? Acts is that the same spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead now resides in us. So if Jesus is sort of center stage in the Gospels, the Holy Spirit is, is center stage in the book of Acts. So what we see over and over, the Holy Spirit gets very specific mention in chapter 11, as he does in most chapters in in the book of Acts. We see the power and personality of God in the work of the Spirit. The traditional name of this book is the Acts of the Apostles. That's the full name. Remember, at the beginning of this series, we said, maybe it should be called something like this, the Acts of the Spirit in and through the Apostles. Because that's where that gives proper glory to who's really moving and orchestrating these transitions. Here's the third one: evangelism and apologetics. What is evangelism? It's sharing the good news in word and deed. What's apologetics? It just means defending the faith, being able to give answers that are reasonable as to why we believe about the name and mission of God. What's going on in, in the book of Acts? Well, remember in the Old Testament, evangelism and apologetics was localized and it was specialized. And now it's become universal. So in the Old Testament, God would raise up specific leaders, prophets, priests, and kings, and they would either announce God's plan or they would accomplish God's plan. And it was very specialized. The Holy Spirit would come and fill that individual, prompt them with utterances or special uh, powers to, to move this thing forward. And what Jesus does when he comes on the scene is he fulfills, he is the perfect and ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And now he gives us this life as Christians. He is now forming, Jesus' life is being formed in us as Christians. That's what we're participating in. And so what happens with evangelism and apologetics is kind of like crowdsourcing. All of a sudden, every Christian is an evangelist. Every Christian is called to be ready to give reasons and answers for the hope that was within us. These are incredibly exciting, monumental shifts in the story. And while you're going through it, it can be really upsetting. Isn't that true? Change while you're going through it can be very, very disorienting. So, all three of these big transitions from the book of acts are actually seen in this chapter i'm going to point out just a couple of things the huge headlines going on are these that gentiles that is non-jewish people are hearing the good news of jesus christ what's more is they're saying yes to god's invitation to be in the family What's even more than that is they are receiving the Holy Spirit, unmistakably sealing them in God's household, and the final headline is that Jews, you can now eat bacon. That is seen in the book of Acts chapter 11. Now, not everyone is thrilled with change. Not everyone is thrilled with these giant transitions that God is accomplishing. I have my own descriptions today. I'm going to give them to you, and you can fill them in in the handout if you want. Number one is this, that change is stirring up trouble. Change is stirring up trouble. Acts chapter 11, verse 1 says this. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem... What we might expect, because we know the end of the story, is when he goes back to Jerusalem, that there are shouts of joy, that God is now moving the mission forward, and that Gentiles are receiving the good news of Jesus Christ. Godless people have begun to worship God. That's what we might expect. It's not what happens. Verse 2, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. Saying you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. All right, this sounds like no big deal to a lot of people. Uh, getting yourself in a Jewish mindset—it's a huge deal. Putting yourself in a Jewish tradition—huge deal. Who's the circumcised uh, circumcision party? It's just code for Jews. Jewish Christians is who's being talked to. Why are they party poopers? Well. God's plan is now going global. And where God has sort of hinted and nudged at the plan, right? All of a sudden, um, he is stating things plainly. He is bulldozing uh, to sort of reorient and reframe how things are going to move forward from this point on. The Jews in Jerusalem are suspicious of the change. I've already said this, but this is actually a good thing. It's actually a good thing that Jews... Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute, what? You went and ate with uncircumcised Gentiles? What's going on? Now, we don't know the tone. We can't always totally infer the, the tone of this. But if you are slow to trust, if you are cautious of change, if you don't immediately readily buy the slogan that everyone is posting and repeating and saying, woo good for you. You are needed in the community. Your voice is needed. Like, wait a minute, huh? Is anyone else questioning this? It's actually a good thing to be slow to change. A Christian is always supremely concerned with these kinds of questions. Am I walking with God or am I walking ahead of God? Am I keeping in step with the Spirit or am I lagging behind? There's a time when staying behind is the wrong thing and moving forward is the wrong thing. How do you discern which is which? Again, change is hard to navigate. God is leading his people to take his message globally and this is new. Change is hard and so conversion is necessary. Let me point out two giant miracles that are going on. Jim covered Acts chapter 10 two weeks ago, and it's, it's, uh, it's being recapped in some ways here in Acts chapter 11. Here's miracle number one. Cornelius' dead stone heart, his Gentile godless ways, he is converted and given a heart of flesh. He's given eyes to see that Jesus is the Messiah, and that there's one true God, and he's worth devoting your life to. That's the first conversion miracle that's going on. Anytime someone is converted from a non-Christian to a Christian, a miracle has taken place. Angels are parting and rejoicing, and so should we. It's a massive deal, but it's not the only conversion going on. Cornelius needed converting, but you know who else did? Peter. Peter has a conversion going on, and God's the one accomplishing it. You say, wait a minute, isn't Peter already a Christian? Isn't he the one preaching the gospel to make other people Christians? Yes. The conversion Peter needs is his own prejudice. He has a mindset about how things are and will continue to be, and God needs to convert Peter's prejudice. What's the prejudice? Well, it's that Jewish people would never be caught dead eating with non-Jewish people. And God needed to convert him. So how does Peter, a church leader, by the way, address conflict in the church? Look at verse 4. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. Pause. Peter's gentle answer is about to turn away the wrath of Jewish Christians who are really torque that he's eating with Gentiles. Peter's words give grace according to the need of the moment. Peter speaks the truth that they didn't want to hear in love, which they most certainly needed. In short, what I would say is that Peter responded like a Christian. Everything I've just said to you are plain speaking principles found in the Bible for all of us to be engaged in. Notice he doesn't fly off the handle, he doesn't exert his authority, he doesn't say how dare you question, he doesn't fly into a rage of why can't you get with the program, God's doing something miraculous, why can't you just see that, he doesn't do any of that. Verse 5, I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending and being let down from heaven by its four corners and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. He's kosher. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. Change is hard, and so conversion is needed. Peter was seeing God announce a part of the new covenant. All foods are now clean. By extension, he's about to move this forward and say, guess what? All nations are are now brothers. That's the new part of the plan that's being unveiled. Change is hard and so god had to patiently tell him three times Maybe the first time peter thought this was a test. No way I wouldn't touch that. I have a perfect track record of not eating that stuff Three times god says this is the new plan Peter goes on to repeat the miraculous events that led to cornelius and his household becoming christians God's working all these different story threads and peter just wants to lay it out in order He tells about his dream that uh, is reinforced by people showing up, which is affirmed by the Spirit telling Peter, go with them, which is confirmed by the people who showed up telling their own story, and it all lines up. Now he concludes with the finale, which is what helped reassure Peter that this change is really from God. Look at verse 15. He shows up, he speaks of the household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then he asked this question. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Here's a church leader laying it out. Saying, here's all the details of what happened. I ask you, congregation, how could I stand in God's way? Don't you see this the same way I do? Verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Read the Old Testament. What God has said in the whispers of creation and hinted at in all of the different covenants. Think Abraham, who who, who is going to be a father to the nations. What he's whispered before, he's now shouting from the rooftops. He's giving unmistakable displays. The Holy Spirit falling on Gentiles. This is exactly what Jesus told. It's coming clear to them. They're coming out of their own sort of sleepy stupor. Here's what I know. When you follow God and God gives you and prompts you to do new things, you will gain critics. You will stir up trouble. Make sure it's the right kind of trouble. Here's number two change prompts recruitment. The gospel's out. The wildfire is burning. This thing's getting big, and lots of people are coming to faith. And guess what? They're not like us, they're not Jews. Look at verse 22. The report of this. All these people coming to faith from other nations came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. That's where this is taking place. And he came and saw the grace of God and was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Look at this. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. So again, we have the church watchdogs getting it right. Hey, there's a new revival going on. Let's send someone that we trust, Barnabas, full of the Holy Spirit, to go and check it out. Give us a report back. What's happening? I'll tell you why this is so important. Look at these two verses on the screen. 2 Timothy chapter 1 says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit that is entrusted to you. Can you advance that one slide for me? Thanks, Ella guard the good deposit that is entrusted to you. We need to guard the church. We need to guard what's going on. It's not just a free-for-all. Good things are happening in God's name. Great. Why do we not just trust everything? Here's the voice of Jesus. Beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Go and test things out. Is this in accord with sound doctrine? Is what I'm saying right now in accord with sound doctrine? Listen, church, we are called together to build the church up in love. A part of that is guarding. That's what the Jerusalem church is doing. So Barnabas goes and checks things out. He saw the grace of God. He was glad he exhorted them to remain faithful. And then he does what every pastor and parent knows to do. In love, as you're raising your child, you will meet things that are way beyond you. You know what you do, parent? You go, help, and you recruit people. Anyone ever be teaching your, your child like, anyone be teaching? So <laughs> let's go. I was going to do math. Let's do English. Anyone be teaching their child, and all of a sudden you get to a spot where you go, this is out of my realm of know-how. I better find an English major to come and help me. Right? How about sports? Some of you are sports uh, nuts and some of you are not. And all of a sudden, your kid wants to learn to throw a football. You're like, I need help on this one. Don't know how to throw a football. I'm going to go find someone who does. I was at a track meet um, recently, my own kids' track meet, and Josh graciously sat with us. for a long time, just cheering our kids on. It was so cool. He sat next to my nine-year-old, who is a brainiac, smart kid. And he is peppering Josh with DNA molecule questions. And I'm like, man, I need to recruit Josh to come and engage my nine-year-old's mind. Because I don't think like that. It was really good stuff. Here's what pastors do. Pastors also recruit. Church leadership says, man, we have this going on. And we need help from the outside. I have a friend who's an absolute expert in a, in Um, Apologetics just defending the faith and rational arguments. He's the kind of guy that writes books I said, let me take you out to lunch Because I want to ask you how would I teach? How would you teach a six-week series and he gave me a bunch of tips and tricks and I said Would you come and teach one of them and he said yes That's just me going to an expert and saying I need help with this So what happens is churches need this i'll tell you one of the biggest ways god provides god provides the people necessary what does Barnabas do? He goes, oh yeah, that guy's Saul. Where's Saul? Saul's back in his homeland of, of Tarsus. That's his home city. We have a lot of people here who are not just Jewish. They're, this, they're, they're multicultural. And so I need to go get Saul. I bet he'd be good at this. So change prompts recruitment. You know what? One of the biggest recruitments here was when I first... Was was here I heard so much spanish in our neighborhood as I went and walked the neighborhood and us as a church went Just invited people so many people spoke spanish And we would have to tell them we are an english-speaking church and uh, and so really the prayer became early on god Would you help us? Would you bring a teammate who's bilingual? So god answered that Prayer in the form of angel and angel came around year five or so And that grew to be just a major marker of what our church is about. We needed help, and so God provided. Verse 26. It says, And when he found him, Barnabas goes to find Saul. He brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. In case you're unclear on this christians are not just interested in making converts more and more converts people getting a decision for christ we are interested in maturing disciples it's a huge difference right um we have a extended family member who has made many many little people by several different women just making a bunch of extra people on the planet isn't necessarily honorable or good would you agree with that but making people and maturing them into functional adults who, are, who know that they are loved and have a purpose and who have been taught how to take responsibility and love and, uh, and, and reproduce others who can, who can then carry on. That's, that's noteworthy. I love that it, it just says that for a year they just met with this church. They just met with them and grew them up. They just kept teaching them and nurturing them and walking them along. It's just discipleship. We're called to make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded to you. That's not just an overnight, quick process. Here's what's powerful. While this congregation benefited from this power duo of Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul are being built up. Saul is being built up for greater and greater ministry purpose. He would eventually become, outside of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and God, the most prominent figure in the New Testament. There's a great character trait of Barnabas here, by the way, when it comes to recruitment. Everywhere that we're going to read from here on out, surely when this church thought of this duo, they would have said it this way. Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. Hey, Barnabas and Saul are going to come for a visit. Barnabas and Saul have been teaching us. What's it going to read the rest of the way in the book of Acts? Saul becomes Paul. You always read it moving forward, Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, right? Because the recruiter who recruits Saul is a humble person. He has the kingdom trait, the fruit of the spirit of humility. He doesn't say, hey, wait a minute, I recruited you. I was here first. Instead, he diminishes while Paul grows There's a card that sits in front of you. It looks like this. It's just a clever way for us to say every single person in our church, just like every part of your body, has a function and a purpose. Some of you are extroverts, and you just say this by your actions. Some of you need help. This is a little on-ramp that just says, put me in, coach. I'm here and available. I'll tell you that moving back to three services means that every single Sunday, there is more need for people to come and serve their church family. Did you know that? Right now, we have need. So let us know. Let church leadership know by just saying, hey, put me in, coach. Number three, change invites name calling. Verse 26, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Let me just explain. This is not a self-given title, and it's not a flattering title they're called Christians by outsiders. Have you ever been made to feel small or shamed by a name? Of course you have. This is like the most base form of argument. Everyone learns this on the playground. You're arguing with a kid about something and when you have nothing else to say, go, oh yeah, well poopy face or whatever you call them. Like you just, you, you just go to name calling. And we see this all over the place. Not a sermon about labels, but be really, really careful with labels. Here's what I love about this God is working in this change. In Iron Man, there's a guy named Agent Phil Colson. Agent Phil Colson regularly introduces himself as I'm an agent with the Strategic Homeland Intervention Enforcement and Logistics Division. And he's teased by both Tony Stark. And uh, and pepper pots who says you got to work on that title like it's just such a mouthful, right? And what that becomes is what? Shield little acronym for shield So here's what's amazing. Do you know what the early christians were called followers of the way? That's kind of a mouthful God rebrands the whole thing Calls them christians. Guess who gets to pick the name? Opponents of christ It's a derisive name it's not flattering. What's really interesting is Christianity being called a Christian, in some circles still, although this is long gone around the Bay Area, but in some circles opened doors in your community. Oh, you're a Christian. Oh, okay. People still put a fish uh, you know, on their logo to sort of say like, hey, we want the Christians this rebranding comes from name-calling. What a commentary on how very out these Christians were with their faith, that others would see the change and call them, oh, you're like little, you're, you're like little Christs. That's where this name sort of came from. If you and I are going to be persecuted for name-calling, let it be in this same vein. That we're just so mimicking the name of Jesus Christ that people attach it to us. We never even have to tell them we're Christians. Here's number four, lastly. Change sets the table for love. This ends with a prophet coming from Jerusalem to tell there's a famine coming to the whole world. Notice how the church responds. Verse 29. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brother's living in Judea. Remember, these are largely Gentile, non-Jewish Christians. These are baby Christians, sending help back to Jewish people. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Notice that this involved a decision. Famine's coming, so they determined. We have an opportunity, don't we? get involved or not, be bothered or don't. May is Foster Care Awareness Month. There's so much foster care overlay on this that I want to show you just a couple of things. One of the things we see here is they actually care to give strategically before the help is needed. Let me have you look at this card for a second. On the back of this card are statistics of what happens When children age out of the foster care system, in other words, if no loving adult, if no safe home comes and gives themselves to this child to change the family tree, these are the statistics that bear out from that. You know what foster care is? It is strategically helping people and families before the famine hits. They're already hungry. They're already in need. They're already hurting. There's already just just an overflow of pain going on. But having a church mobilized to say, hey, you Humphreys who are going to step forward to open your home and fill your home with kids in need of a home, we're with you in this. We are determined to be bothered. We are choosing to get involved. Foster care is strategic, preemptive help. We know there is a massive famine coming if this doesn't change. This is why we as a church, just so you know, if you're new here, we are committed to this. We're not going away from this because the need isn't going away. Two more things quickly, band, why don't you come on up? Notice this is a group effort. Each one did their part. Each one says, let me, let me give. What I'm able. Let me jump in with compassion. All of us have a role to play, not just in foster care, in caring for the famine and the needs of other people. When you have a group of people who are collectively concerned for outsiders, do you know what it limits? It limits infighting. Churches aren't alone in this, but churches are really good at starting to nitpick and sort of look around at each other. They gave less than I gave. What about that person over there? I heard this person said that. All kinds of infighting goes on. We are called to a much bigger vision. And when we collectively, as a group project, turn our concern to those outside, man, it limits the infighting. Finally, they followed through. It says, and they did so. They formed a plan and they executed. I love that. Some of you are executors. You're the ones who say, Did we actually do what we say we're doing? Man, you're needed in this church. It's great to have dreams. It's great to pray for people. I'll pray for you, brother, sister. Good. Can you do anything about it? We need you. We need you to come and like say, hey, let's actually put feet to this. Like, Let's actually do something. That's what they did. They formed a plan. They sent funds. They sent relief before the famine even hit. Isn't that a remarkable picture? Isn't that inspiring? Like That inspires me. This is a baby church, a new church. These aren't established Christians. They just have the spirit of the living God and they're doing the very same things God is calling us as a church to do. We're gonna take communion right now. And the way that we're gonna do it, if you don't have one of of the communion elements, go ahead and leave it back there, Les. I wanna invite you, I wanna invite you to maybe have some sort of change to how you do communion this week. Kind of in the spirit of not just being in the status quo, that God can work in different ways. For some of you, this may feel very, very uncomfortable, but maybe you're going to get up and stand and sort of use your body. The house lights are going to be low. We're going to sing a song. We're going to take communion together. But if you always take it at your seat, maybe stand up. Go and get your elements and, and, and stand up. Maybe some of you would say, "Man, I want to come and like be at, kneeling at, at the empty tomb, sort of a representation of the empty tomb. Maybe you could serve communion to someone else. It's okay to take two communions. Someone else serves communion to you. Maybe as a father, you want to lead your family and sort of gather around and lead your, your wife or your family in, in communion. So I just invite you to be open to a different way of doing this. God, thank you for not only breathing life into us, but God, one of the ways that would make no sense to us, but you've ordained that we as a church community come and we partake of bread and juice to represent body and blood. And God, in that, we sense this communion. We are walking and living and reenacting what's happening in us and through us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen.